Hello and welcome to episode number 96 of the Agro Innovations Podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast has been released onto our website on Tuesday, July 6th, 2010. It is a day late because we just passed the 4th of July weekend and I uh, took a little much needed R&R. And I hope that our listeners out there had a nice 4th of July weekend as well. And I hope that um, you enjoyed whatever it is that you did over this past weekend. On this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast, we are joined by Joanne Baumgartner, who is the director of the Wild Farm Alliance. The Wild Farm Alliance's mission is to promote a healthy, viable agriculture that helps protect and restore wild nature. Joanne Baumgartner, welcome to the Agro Innovations Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me, Frank. Let's just start by having you tell us a little bit about the Wild Farm Alliance. What is it and what do you do? Yeah, well, we are a small organization that is based in central California along the coast, but we have a national focus. We work on policy and education. So um, some of the policy issues we are uh, tackling have to do with ensuring that the organic community, both um, organic farmers and the certification um, agencies, along with uh, the National Organic Program rule, addresses biodiversity conservation. So I've been working on that for several years and actually um, got feedback from about a dozen organic uh, New Mexico farmers about that project, and um, we also work on policy related to food safety because it turns out some misguided efforts are trying to sterilize farms um, with the thought that by getting rid of wildlife and habitat, there uh, won't be any uh, problem with uh, pathogens in food when, in fact, vegetation, non-crop vegetation has been shown to filter 99% of, of uh, pathogens. So, um, but we also do educational um, outreach uh, and uh, work with some local farmers putting in conservation practices. Okay, now let's talk about what wild farming is. Uh, it's based on a few fundamental premises about the relationship between industrial agriculture and biodiversity. Can you talk about this relationship? Well, wild farming is not just about industrial. I mean, we w would like to see all farms accommodate the wild and benefit from and support the wild. So that could be um, on an industrial scale, we uh, w would like to see farms. And some big farms are protecting water quality. That's probably at least here in our area, the most uh, well-addressed issue with regards to conservation. But it probably um, across the country uh, has um, a better focus than most other practices that we also promote um, with industrial agriculture. But we don't just work with industrial ag, as I uh, mentioned we work with organic farmers, which could be industrial, but also small farmers and mid-sized mid, mid -sized farmers, um, all, 
all sizes and um, scope can and some do address conservation well on the farm. So that could be putting in native plant hedgerows that attract pollinators, which we all know are in decline. Um, uh, those hedgerow plants can also attract beneficial insects like um, predators and parasitic insects that attack pest insects on the farm. And there's uh, practices that get rid of invasive species that would crowd out otherwise crowd out natives, and, and there's also practices of um, using predator-friendly uh, techniques when raising livestock so that not every uh, thing that moves that's not related to agriculture is shot, killed, trapped, fenced out. Um, so it's a wide variety of, of um practices that farmers can adopt to integrate nature and benefit from it on their farms and help the larger community with having a diverse system that's, uh, you know, visually beautiful, uh, healthy as far as water quality, healthy as far as air quality, and, um, yeah, just a, a, functioning, a functioning ecosystem for us all to exist in. Talk about the historical origins of wild farming and tell us a little bit about where this concept emerged and in what context it emerged. Well, I think uh, some aspect of it has probably been around since Aldo Leopold, um, who came from the Southwest originally, and during the Dust Bowl era, he um, worked with the precursor of the Natural Resources Conservation Service to the Soil Conservation Service to address um, Dust Bowl, the Dust Bowl crisis. But uh, he brought a conservation ethic into uh, managed lands and, and uh, into agriculture. And we, the Wild Farm Alliance, have been around for 10 years. We have a national board, and we're kind of taking up on Aldo Leopold's uh, vision, but uh, not just his. Um, there's a lot of other great farmers and, and uh, uh, advisors that are helping us shape this, this new way of, of addressing conservation in uh, the 21st century. Now, including biodiversity in a farm plan requires that farmers really change their point of view. Why is a farmer's perception such an important key in wild farming? Yeah, well, uh, when I was in New Mexico, I was happy to see that there are, is a, enough biodiversity left on the landscape that most managers, most farmers understand the value and and want to conserve it as much as possible. And so it's not it's not such a hard sell. Uh in other areas um where f- farming has gone from fence row to fence row, it's and and that um understanding of the benefits of having a diverse landscape have been lost generations ago. It's much harder to um, convince somebody that they, you know, could benefit from some something from the wild. It's it's uh, 
I know we, we've worked with some farmers here in our area who had have told me after we put in native plant hedgerows and did a biodiversity farm plan with them and, and talked to them about these, this farm in particular I'm thinking about had been growing uh, row crops and um, not livestock, but didn't like coyotes, didn't like foxes coming through. And when we talked about the connectivity that was important to provide on a farm that then could help him with his gopher population, he said, you know, I always thought nature was my enemy. And 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 so he had, a you know, a, a new perspective on, on just thinking about the, you know, all the different pieces on the landscape and how they can fit together. And it's not always them against us, but um, there's, it, it, and it's a gray area. There's also times when um, the wild can be hard to deal with. And, and so farmers, as, um, as they get more involved in this kind of farming, they start to understand that there's lots of management um, nuances that um, need to be considered. There are many different forms of wildlife and biodiversity that can exist on a farm. Let's talk a little bit about some of these different types of biodiversity. Let's talk about aquatic animals like fish and macroinvertebrates. How can wild farming promote the health of these organisms? Five protecting water quality is is the best way so there's um there's two ways to address that from the upper end of things when a farm is uh planting a crop to think about only applying as much fertilizer or or any kind of nutrients that the crop needs and don't pl- apply excess because that can very likely end up in aquatic systems Um, and then to also thoughtfully figure out where there are erosion problems and deal with them before the crop goes in the ground and um, farm in a way that uh, you're not farming on really steep hillsides that are no matter what you do going to have huge amount of erosion because sediments going into aquatic systems are really hard on um, those aquatic species. And then, so that's kind of on the front end of things, but on the other end, to have uh, viable riparian habitat um, if, if a farm is next to a creek or a stream and also to um, grass their ditches, especially if um, those ditches are on a slope so that the vegetation filters out the nutrients and sediment. And also farmers that use pesticides to use them sparingly and to try and incorporate plantings like native plant hedgerows that can attract beneficial insects and help them to deal with their pests so that they don't even or may not even use need to use those tools. And so all of those practices can help to reduce impacts on aquatic systems. Okay, let's also talk about um, wetlands. What are the importance of wetlands and how do the wetlands fit into wild farming? Well, wetlands are kind of the lungs of the landscape. So they really help to clean our 
water in in a in a significant way compared to just having grasses in the ditches or um, uh, repairing systems, which are important. But uh, there's been research that shows that with um, E. coli pathogens, wetlands can filter to up to 99% of them. And so they, and of course, they are also filtering um, nutrients and pesticides and sediments. And, and so they're really important to for water quality, for food safety. They're also important because they support so many different kinds of um, species that need uh, some kind of riparian or, or wet area at, during some part of their life cycle. Your website talks about a continental wildlands network in which large protected areas are connected by wildlife movement corridors. What does this mean, and how can wild farmers play a role in this? Yeah, well, there's definitely um, several organizations that are working on a continental scale to to have that kind of connectivity, which is going to be really important as the, uh, we feel more and more the climate change um, occurring where species are going to have to move or they could just wink out. And because agriculture um, comprises two-thirds of the continental U.S., about half of that is in private holdings, but the rest is in BLM and um, Forest Service lands. Um, having agriculture provide that connectivity will be really important. And so um, farmers can look at where they sit within the, the um, land and see, well, what, you know, where, what are they next to? Are they near um, uh, a big area where, say, shorebirds fly through? And, and is there um, any areas on their farms that they could either conserve or restore that could be another stopping place for for birds but also in riparian systems if there are anytime farms are on riparian systems those are corridors for the wild and so um, conserving, restoring, making those as vibrant as possible is something that farmers can do on their land that will then link into these um, larger efforts for um, continental-wide um, connectivity. So is there, are you saying there's an effort to kind of map out these corridors, where they could be, where they should be, where they are being implemented? and then to kind of connect these different, perhaps fragmented habitats across the entire continental U.S.? And, and if that is the case, what is the status of that on a, on a landscape and a continental level? Yes, it, that is occurring. We specifically aren't um, working on that, but um, I, uh, I know there is a lot of um, effort to try and understand where the um, different um, public natural areas are, what, where key species are that that need movement, and and 
and how much they move and where um, that occurs. And I know um, the mountain ranges that uh, run north to south across the country in the west and the central part of the country in the east are definitely part of those um, wildlands corridors. But specifically mapping out, um, you know, is it going to be my land that you're mapping, um, which kind of makes people nervous. Um, I don't know that that's happening so much. It's, I think it's more of a bigger vision of and people trying to see who wants to collaborate on this. There is um, in uh, some of our board members in New York have been working on a connectivity project where they uh, are connecting Lake Champlain, um, which is near the New York-Vermont border, with the Adirondacks, and it's a 50-mile stretch where <clears throat> they have been working with um, groups that provide easements to landowners to protect those those lands forever, and um, then in uh, when landowners decide to do that, they get compensated um, in some way, usually financially, uh, so that it you know it works for them. And a lot of um, landowners want to see the land continue in the same use that it is, as opposed to some kind of sprawl that could occur without thoughtful planning. One of the things that occurs to me as we talk about this is that when we talk about habitat for biodiversity, I think a big um, detractor from that or a, a big obstacle to that has been our compartmentalization of agriculture in the sense that Corn farms have been specifically and only corn farms, monocultures basically. Forestry has been uh, on lands pretty much just designated for forestry. Uh, rangelands and grazing have been pretty much just designated as rangelands and grazing. And part of what I'm hearing from you, I think, is that we're looking at a more integrated agriculture where we have things like agroforestry and civil pastoral systems and maybe even aquaculture and those types of activities um, integrated into these farm systems. I wonder if you could comment on that. Yeah, well, diversity really uh, helps bring resiliency to a farm. So um, having uh, lots of different kinds of vegetation, for instance, can support different kinds of organisms that then help the farm um, with their production, and if they just are farming in monoculture, then they often have to use more technology, which um, doesn't really fit in the natural system as well, which um, means they're probably going to use a lot more pesticides and a lot more um, potentially, but not necessarily, uh, more fertilizer, um, and uh, it's it, the the fertility of the soil usually um, decreases over time with mo monocultures, and the diversity of soil organisms then decrease, and it 
which then can mean that there is more pest pressure um, on the crop and uh, from pathogens that aren't take, that aren't alleviated in a diverse soil ecosystem to pests that overwinter because you're not breaking the crop cycle. Um, so, but integrating. Um, systems or farming in areas that are more diverse with um, forestry, with um, grasslands nearby, providing, you know, areas that aren't cultivated for the wild um, can happen and does happen on um, farms in a really um, uh, beneficial way, and also the farmer. Um, we have talked to lots of farmers that say, you know, I've been farming for years and years and years, and I'm in this farming with the wild is exciting. It's it it makes life not boring, and it's also provides places for farmers to go to take their lunch and um, take their families, and not just uh, be this um, economic powerhouse that that doesn't doesn't give uh, you know some quiet space, but the, but all of that can occur and be integrated financially, uh, sustainably financially, but sustainably for you know someone to want to continue to farm that way and and for families. The next generation to want to also become engaged. Do you see some of what we are seeing in terms of the destruction of biodiversity as a result of agriculture, um, in part at least, a consequence of cheap food? I mean, it, it seems like food is is fairly cheap, and farm gate prices are you know chronically depressed. It seems like it seems like it's difficult for farmers to do some of these things that you're talking about, um, you know, putting in hedgerows and those sorts of things um, when food is so cheap and they are paid such low prices for their products. Yeah, that's so true. Um, and I come at it from a uh, angle where, I actually, my husband and I had an organic farm for a dozen years and um, felt that firsthand that the food that we were growing would hardly go up in price when everything else would, um, all the inputs, all of the, you know, uh, all the things that we needed to survive um, uh, didn't go up. And that is in a big part due to the federal farm bill that is supporting commodities that uh that are it, it's really keeping food really cheap um but on the other hand there are also programs in the farm bill that um help farmers put in conservation practices the natural resources conservation service spends something like 4 billion dollars a year on conservation for um, landowners and um, so they do have cost share funds farmers can sign up for to put in native plant hedgerows or to conserve and restore wetlands so it it's definitely 
the farm bill is uh, it, it it needs reform. There's been a big effort the last uh, with the last farm bill to get more people educated about this issue, and um, our board president Dan Imhoff put out this book um, called Food Fight. The Citizen's Guide to a Food and Farm Bill, and it's even though it came out with the last farm bill, it's it's completely relevant to um, what is happening with cheap food. And um, what we would like to see is that uh, all the money that's going into commodities be um, redirected into more conservation efforts. Well, that is certainly. Um Something I would like to see as well, uh, I also know that there are some pretty powerful interests behind the structure of the Farm Bill um, that have made the Farm Bill the way it is for some, you know, uh, for their economic interests, I should say. Um, I want to ask you, you had mentioned predators, and these are often seen, as you mentioned, as enemies of farmers and ranchers, but many wild farmers would disagree. Can you talk a, a little bit about the role of predators in wild farming and how uh, predators can be conserved in the context of wild farming? Yeah, well, it it really depends on the type of livestock that um, a farmer is producing and or if they're only growing row crops because there are predatory insects. There's predatory birds that e predatory insects are eating uh, pest insects. Predatory birds might be eating pest insects or pest rodents or um, uh, there's bats that are predatory bats that are eating insects. Um, but predators, um, four-legged predators, uh, can coexist with farms um, and and there's just a lot of different techniques that these predator-friendly farmers use, um, such as when um, young are born, to not have them in a really uh, high-risk um, pastures where they know that, that it's a corridor for predators, to bring them in closer to um, buildings and or uh, keep them enclosed if they're really small. Um, I think the issue... It, uh, for predators, it has really come up for sheep production because sheep um, they it, they just don't have the wherewithal to to um, do much about them. Um, whereas with cattle, um, um, cattle farmers or ranchers will rotationally graze their cattle where they keep their cattle in a herd and then move them from pasture to pasture, which is really good for the pasture so they don't overeat um, one area. But it also works for um, predator-friendly practices because when you have a herd of mothers uh, that have calves, um, it's really unattractive for a predator to try and take on uh, these huge animals, uh, um, angry mothers. Um, so, and then with um, chickens can also, chicken producers 
also have problems if they are actually letting their chickens out uh graze uh, out in the uh pastures and or they don't actually graze but they're 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 feeding eating insects and grubs and and uh maybe some vegetation out in pastures and um so what some of the farmers are doing are or, or have created these movable, they call them chicken tractors, where the chickens are out all day on a pasture, but chickens like to roost at night and they like to be in protected areas. So a farmer can move this, uh, like a, a movable pen, to different areas in the in in on a um, pasture, so that the the chickens aren't in one location for too long, and also then um they have to go out there in the evening and let the chickens into the this movable coop when the chickens want to go they 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 like that and then the um farmer has to come out in the morning and let them out and so it's a little more management than just letting them be outside all the time but that helps reduce um predation and some for going back to sheep some farmers use uh guard dogs or um guard llamas or guard donkeys and if done right if if uh, a young um say uh, a puppy is brought um in to grow up with the sheep and they bond with the sheep and the farmer makes sure that they don't bond with people then that um dog will uh, want to be with his sheep and and they really dissuade predators i think though um it's it's mostly coyotes and foxes and smaller kinds of predators not mountain lions or um wolves okay now as one last question i'd like to ask you what you foresee uh will be the biggest obstacles and difficulties that will face wild farming now from now into the next 10 to 20 years? Um, I think it's food safety. And we've been working really hard to promote the concept of co-managing uh, for food safety and conservation. Right now there's legislation pending that um, will instruct the FDA to create food safety standards and um we ha- and a network of of organizations have been encouraging uh FDA to ensure that there is co-management but it would be great for your listeners to check out our website um which is wildfarmalliance.org because on the homepage you you're directed to sending in some comments to FDA on the kinds of practices that that they should um, be considering and things that they should uh, incorporate into standards because they are coming. And here in um, our area of Central California, um, after the spinach contamination occurred in 2006, there was a huge amount of conservation setbacks. Farmers managing 140,000 acres said that 89% of those farmers in a survey said that they were doing something to kill wildlife, poison traps, fence them out, or and 
um, get rid of their habitat. And it was because their buyers were telling them that um, food was not safe with wildlife around. And wildlife actually are a low risk um, for food safety. Some wildlife um, carry a small amount sometimes, and and research is um, furiously uh, going forward now to try and figure out how and why this all works, but we do know that cattle are the major carrier of E. coli 0157. They're the main reason why we have so much of it out on the landscape, and we also know that processed, fresh processed um, food like salad mix is a risky product, and that ha- because it's so convenient and so lucrative, that um, production has focused a lot um, on those kind of products, and that uh, heightens the risk. It's it's unfortunate that FDA doesn't hasn't um, addressed that issue. They uh, want to instruct all farms to potentially have really onerous standards they have to adhere to that won't allow for conservation-based agriculture. But as I said in the beginning, there are vegetation, non-crop vegetation like wetlands and grasses can filter up to 99% of E. coli pathogens. So it's really counterproductive to not include conservation in the biggest in the big picture, but I think moving forward, that is going to be the struggle. Well, Joanne Baumgartner, I'd like to thank you for joining us today on the Agro Innovations Podcast, and I'd like to thank you and the Wild Farm Alliance for the work that you are doing uh, in policy and also education, uh, helping farmers and the general public understand why wild farming is important. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. That concludes my interview with Joanne Baumgartner of the Wild Farm Alliance. I will link to their website on the show notes for this podcast. And if you would like to know more about the Wild Farm Alliance, I would encourage you to visit their website. I'd like to thank everyone out there for continuing to listen to the Agro Innovations podcast. Our listenership has uh, continued to grow uh, with every episode, so that is good news. And I'd like to thank people for posting links to the Agro Innovations podcast on the Oil Drum, on Facebook, via Twitter, uh, on different forums out there on the World Wide Web. That is always appreciated when um, you direct potential new listeners to the podcast, or even if you are just sharing a specific episode uh, um, that might be useful for someone, that is appreciated as well. Just a reminder that this and all episodes of the Agro Innovations Podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, you can visit creativecommons.org. Agro Innovations is on Twitter, twitter.com slash agroinnovations. We are also on iTunes. If you type in keyword Agro Innovations into iTunes, um, our, the Agro Innovations Podcast will come up. If you prefer to get your podcasts via iTunes, then um, please visit us there. And also, you can subscribe to the Agro Innovations Podcast via the RSS feed on the website. Please share your comments with us uh, via the comment thread for any given episode of the podcast, this or any other episode. 
Next week, we will continue with the holistic management series of the Agro Innovations podcast. So if you have been enjoying that series, then um, you don't want to miss next week's episode. This is the Agro Innovations podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. Saludos.